Open your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, and then to chapter 15, and then to verse 40, or you can navigate with your fingers on your electronic device. Anybody have a new Apple Watch yet? No? All right. We'll go on anyway. Mark 15, verse 40 through 47, that's our text. The topic, Joseph of Arimathea persuades Pilate to give him the body of Jesus so he can prepare the Lord for burial. The title of our message, The Persuasion of the Body Snatcher. Let's have a word of prayer. Lord, thank you for inviting us to this place this morning. It's a divine appointment that you've made for us. And we're here keeping it, Lord. We expect that your Holy Spirit will be our teacher, that the living word will be powerful, discerning between the soul and the spirit. Questions will be answered. Your will will be revealed. Your love will become more cherished. Leaving this place, those of us that are Christians will be more like Jesus. And if there's anyone here that doesn't know you, Lord, your Holy Spirit would convict them of sin and of righteousness and of the judgment to come. They would be drawn to the cross where you were lifted up so that all men might be saved. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. The last lines in books and movies really should capture the meaning of the entire story. It's a tall order, but it can be done. Can you identify this famous last line? Well, I'm back. Well, those are the last words spoken by Samwise Gamgee to end J.R.R. Tolkien's fantasy trilogy, The Lord of the Rings. Sam is a kind of everyman character. He's the guy we're supposed to relate to in the story. He's a guy quietly going about his daily routine who suddenly is pressed upon to do something remarkable. He returns from the journey changed, never to be quite as quiet or as timid, but valuing more than ever getting back to his routine life. Well, I'm Back captures perfectly the fact that his extraordinary exploits had preserved ordinary life in the Shire. It's a perfect last line. My thoughts went to Sam because of something we see in the verses we're about to read. Mark introduces us to Joseph of Arimathea. He steps forward out of nowhere to claim the body of Jesus to assure he is prepared for a proper Jewish burial. Joseph is a kind of closet disciple who suddenly gets pressed into service to do something remarkable. Mark also calls our attention to the group of women who had been following Jesus around as he ministered to others for three and a half years. They served him, performing routine, you might even say mundane tasks. Now, I mostly identify with the group of women. My service to the Lord is generally pretty routine. I'd like to identify more with Joseph and do something remarkable. The routine and the remarkable are going to be our theme. I'll organize my thoughts around these two points. Number one, don't think that your routine service for the Lord is insignificant. And number two, don't think that your remarkable service for the Lord is inconceivable. Let's take a look at routine service, first of all, in verses 40 and 41. Mr. Miyagi's training regimens in The Karate Kid are the classic example of a person coming to realize the significance of the mundane. What seems mundane and routine actually has great significance. He had Daniel sanding his floors, waxing his cars, painting his fence in his house. 
When Daniel complained he wasn't learning karate, Mr. Miyagi asked him to demonstrate the repetitive movements. You remember that sequence. Show me sand the floor. Show me wax on, wax off. Show me paint the fence. Show me paint the house. Remember that? It's classic. I watched it three or four times. I love that movie. I'm sorry. (laughs) The original, not the remake. Each movement turned out to be a defensive response. What seemed repetitive and routine to Daniel was really quite significant in preparing him for his tournament. Now, most of your daily activities as you walk with the Lord are pretty mundane. They're going to be pretty routine. They're going to be wax on, wax off. Never think they are insignificant. Doing everything as unto the Lord is honorable in itself, and it prepares you for whatever may be coming your way. Mark introduces us to a group of ladies whose routine daily life was to minister to the mundane needs of Jesus. Verse 40, there were also women looking on, and they're looking on at the crucifixion. Jesus has just died on the cross. Looking on from afar, among whom were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the Less and Joseph, and Salome. Now, Mary of Magdala is how it should read. Since there were so many Marys following Jesus, this one was distinguished from all the others by reference to her Galilean hometown of Magdala. This is the first mention of her in Mark's gospel. The earliest reference to her is in the gospel of Luke, where it's recorded that Jesus cast out of her seven demons. She's mentioned 12 times in the New Testament making her the second most mentioned woman after another Mary, Mary the mother of Jesus. Now, except in John 19, Mary is always named first in these lists of women. And because of the way that the Jews did things, we can therefore deduce that she held an unofficial position of leadership among the women. Mary of Magdala has been the victim of slander by church officials, specifically that she was a prostitute. The Roman Catholic Church was guilty of fastening this slander upon Mary when at Naples in 1324, it established its first Magdalene house for the rescue and maintenance of fallen women. Because it was assumed that she was a prostitute, they named their house for wayward women the Magdalene house. Now, there is zero biblical evidence that Mary was a prostitute or a notorious sinner. Yes, she was... Uh, inhabited by seven demons, but there's no information about her being uh, especially wicked as a result of that. Nor was she the girlfriend or the wife of Jesus, as is sometimes portrayed in extra-biblical literature. For one thing, the fact that she assumed a leading role among the women argues for her being a much older woman. We imagine her in her 20s or 30s, but she was just as likely to be above 50 or 60 years of age. We, we have no idea how old she was, so why do we think she was a young woman, a prostitute? Uh, it, it became popular in the church, and there's a lot of Renaissance art that portrays her that way, but there's no biblical evidence whatsoever that she was a prostitute or that she was even young. Most of the references to her are positive and are found in the crucifixion and empty tomb accounts where she's portrayed as a loyal disciple at the foot of the cross and as one of the first witnesses to the resurrection. Women were last at the cross, first to the tomb. The next Mary is distinguished by her sons. James the Less and Joseph must have been well known to the early church. 
Uh, they were a ministry team of brothers who all you had to do is mention their name and everybody knew who you were talking about. The nickname Les apparently served to distinguish this James from other men of that common name by a reference to his stature. And so there were other Jameses around Jesus and many Jameses in uh, New Testament times. He was either a little guy or he was one of those big guys that you call tiny. And we don't know which it was, but James the Less, uh, I go for him being a big guy because uh, nobody wants to be called tiny if you're tiny, right? Or maybe you do. Salome's name appears only in Mark's gospel, appears here and then in chapter 16. A comparison with Matthew's gospel indicates she was the mother of Zebedee's children, that is the apostles James and John. From a comparison with John 19, it's commonly held that she was also the sister of Jesus' mother Mary. And then in verse 41, it tells us what they did. They followed him and ministered to him when he was in Galilee and many other women who came up with him to Jerusalem. And so numerous women followed Jesus to Jerusalem to celebrate this final Passover. Mary and Mary and Salome ministered to Jesus when he was in Galilee, and they followed him when he was outside of Galilee. Uh, They were constantly serving the Lord. And so think for just a moment about Jesus and the 12, and sometimes many more, traveling from place to place as Jesus went about preaching the kingdom of God and giving the gospel. There was grocery shopping to be done. There were meals to be prepared. Clothes needed laundering and mending. This needed to be done every day, needed to be done day by day, and it had to go on for about three and a half years. And so every day for three and a half years, there was just mundane living to take care of behind the scenes. How many of you really like grocery shopping at Walmart? Raise your hand. I kind of do, but I'm an anomaly. But, uh, you know, it's that kind of thing. And the truth is, uh, they did it quite literally as unto the Lord. You know, we talk about doing everything as unto the Lord. They did it literally as unto the Lord because it it was for him directly. They were contemporaries of his. And so when they shopped and when they cooked, when they mended clothing, when they did laundry, it was actually for Jesus. But we ought to do the same in our mundane and routine activities. It all should be as unto the Lord. Colossians 3.17. Whatever you do in word or deed, do all of it in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, you and I, we know this. This is something basic. You probably think about it several times a day. But we need to be reminded of this. All of your mundane daily activities can be done as unto the Lord. The key concept here is, am I where the Lord wants me to be, doing what the Lord wants me to be doing in the group where the Lord has placed me? And then no matter what, uh, no matter how insignificant my shopping at Walmart seems, I can actually do it as unto the Lord. And that can mean a lot of different things. It could mean that God can use me at Walmart. I might be able to minister to somebody by being the only person smiling at Walmart. There's a lot of different ways, but, but the idea is that we, we tend to think that the routine, mundane activities of our life really don't count. And I'm here to tell you, and Mary and Mary and Salome are here to tell you, and Paul in Colossians 3 is here to tell you, 
Everything can be done as unto the Lord and have its own significance. Now, at the same time, we don't want to settle for the routine if and when the remarkable presents itself. And so as we go into verses 42 through 47, don't think that your remarkable service for the Lord is something inconceivable. In the Old Testament, Amos was a herdsman and he was a grower of figs. About 755 BC, God called him to leave his farm in the southern kingdom of Judah to go and prophesy judgment against the northern kingdom of Israel. So Amos is literally minding his own business as a Judean rancher and farmer when the call of God comes on him not to talk to his own people, but to talk to the northern ten tribes in Israel and to bring God's judgment against them. It was altogether remarkable. He had no formal training as a graduate of the school of the prophets. He had taken no online courses. He didn't have a document from the Universal Life Church that said he was a minister. He was just a rancher and a farmer. or a, a, Yeah, a herdsman. He had no informal training. He wasn't a layman. He had no experience whatsoever. As far as we can tell, his remarkable ministry as a prophet lasted just a few months. Afterward, he returned to his hometown of Tekoa, and presumably, he lived out the rest of his life as a rancher and a farmer. No formal training, no informal training, no experience. Who does that sound like? Well, that sounds like you and me. This is an exciting moment for us, just reading the book of Amos in the Old Testament. There's an Amos in all of us, and we see that in Joseph of Arimathea. His inner Amos came out, you might say. Verse 42, now when an evening had come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Preparation day is a technical term that described the daylight hours on Friday that lead up to sundown Friday when the Sabbath begins. Because no work was to be done on the weekly Sabbath, you must make preparation for it ahead of time, doing whatever needed to be done to avoid work. And so you had to prepare certain food and laundry, whatever it was that you would need during the Sabbath, you had to prepare for ahead of the Sabbath. And so those hours were called the preparation day. The regular weekly Sabbath was sundown Friday through sundown Saturday. It was never, and it is not, Sunday. Sunday is not somehow the new Christian Sabbath. There are Christian groups, sincere believers, who uh, will try and tell you that uh, Sunday is somehow the new Sabbath that Christians should keep. And that's just not true. The Sabbath is still sundown Friday to sundown Saturday for Israel, Paul the Apostle let us know in Colossians that you're not to be judged by any Sabbaths, meaning you have no relationship to keeping the Sabbath. And in the book of Acts, there was a church council about whether Gentile believers needed to keep Jewish regulations, and those Jewish guys said, yeah, no, they don't. All they need to do is not offend Jews. And so we're not under any obligation to keep the Sabbath uh, in that legalistic sense. Now, because we know that Jesus was the fulfillment of Passover, and therefore he was crucified the same time the Passover lambs were being slain in the temple, we know that the date was the 15th of the month, Nisan, on the Jewish calendar. We're not sure of the year, although it was most likely 33 AD. 
That date is based on the classic scholarly work of James Usher, who wrote in the 1600s. And in 33 AD, the 15th of Nisan happened to fall on a Friday. And so that's your best guess as to the year Jesus was crucified. The hobbits, you'll remember, had a second breakfast. Well, the Jews had a first and second evening, as they would reckon the day. Jesus died shortly after 3 p.m. Evening here in our verse means the first evening from mid-afternoon to sunset, not the second evening from sunset to dark, since Jesus was buried before sunset. It was probably about uh, 4 p.m., since no work could be done after sundown, it was a time, uh, time was at a premium if Jesus were to be prepared for burial. There were only about three hours uh, for this to be accomplished. Now, what's interesting in all this is if you're thinking, in all of Jesus talking to his disciples about his crucifixion and subsequent resurrection, no instruction had been given about his burial, it seemed to be a major flaw in his plan. Have you ever planned a big event and, and thought you had everything lined up and then realized that you missed a major part of it? You're planning a wedding reception and there's no food or something like that. And, and this kind of is lining up that way. It's like, I'm going to be crucified and I'll raise on the third day and his disciples aren't really getting it anyway. But there's no talk about his burial and in those days when you were crucified you were just thrown into a ditch when you died and 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 so it was very kind of significant well god always is able to provide for his plan and that's essentially what providence is it is god providing for his plan without violating human free will in this case god is going to prompt a man to step forward he was compelled, obviously, by the Holy Spirit who gave him boldness, but it's clear he was acting freely and that he could have refused. So verse 43, we're introduced to him. Joseph of Arimathea, a prominent council member who was himself waiting for the kingdom of God, coming and taking courage, went into Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Joseph comes out of nowhere. We meet him for the first time in the Gospel of Mark. So Mark provides some basic background information, gives us a little bit of a resume on Joseph. Joseph was yet another common name in Israel. This was the Joseph from Arimathea. And we don't really know where that was. It's been suggested it's another name for the town, Ramah. doesn't matter what town it is. Wherever it was, this is the Joseph from Arimathea who now resided in Jerusalem. Prominent stands alone as a descriptor. It means he was socially connected, it means he was held in high esteem, and it means that he was wealthy. The council he was a member of is the Jewish ruling council, the Sanhedrin, consisted of 71 men. Think of it as a kind of supreme court in Israel, only uh, without other branches of government. I mean, they were the supreme leaders. It's interesting but totally unimportant factoid, several aspects of the U.S. Senate including the semicircle seating of the senators, were derived from the Jewish Sanhedrin by the founding fathers. And so maybe that'll come up on Jeopardy sometime uh, or in an argument that you're having, or you can some, somehow think of a way to sneak that in. Waiting for the kingdom of God indicates Joseph was a spiritually-minded man. He was a devout Jew in the best possible sense of their religion. We spend so much time talking about the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and 
the Sadducees and these different groups, that we forget that there were sincere Jews who were worshiping God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and who desired to see the fulfillment of the Old Testament prophecies, to see God glorified again. And so Joseph was one of these, a devout Jew in the best sense of their religion. But wait a minute, wasn't it the Sanhedrin that had condemned Jesus of blasphemy and had turned him over to Rome as an accused traitor to Caesar? Well, it was, and that's why John's gospel reveals that Joseph was a secret disciple of Jesus, but that fear kept him from making any public confession of his hope. And then Luke notes that, and this is a quote, Joseph had not consented to the decision and the deed. And so he was a member of the Sanhedrin, But he didn't consent to what they were doing with Jesus. However, he did hold his peace. Nicodemus, who came to Jesus at night, shared a closet with him. I can only imagine them at their meetings looking at each other, probably each one hoping the other would be courageous enough to speak up. And up to now, neither one of them had spoken up. Before we criticize either or both of them, consider if there's ever been a time in your or my life that we held our tongue out of fear of sharing Jesus. I don't think, well, I don't have to look too far uh, to find uh, some times like that where there's a little bit of a fear of man. And I think all of us uh, have that. I get in situations all the time because huh, I guess because I'm the pastor, I'm always expected to say something in a situation like that. People just look at me. You gonna say anything or what? And so then I do, and then I get into trouble. But anyway, uh, better me than you, I guess. But, uh, but all of us, fail the Lord in our testimony from time to time. And so these guys, um, you know, yeah, they were blowing it. Uh, You know, Nicodemus sneaking around, coming to Jesus at night so nobody will see him, and Joseph keeping his mouth shut. But now we're going to see that the Lord has something in store for Joseph. Closet Joseph suddenly gives way to courageous Joseph coming forward asking Pilate for the body of Jesus, totally out of character. Mark doesn't mention him, but Nicodemus also stepped up. He bought the spices that were needed to prepare Jesus for burial, and he helped Joseph get Jesus down from the cross. Courageous doesn't begin to describe Joseph's actions, if you think about it for just a minute. Pilate must have been in a pretty foul mood. The Jewish ruling council that Joseph was a member of, and uh, they had cornered him into releasing a notorious terrorist, Barabbas, and into executing an innocent man, Jesus, against his better judgment. They had made a fool of him, pressuring him into a terrible decision. You also know in the story of Pilate that his wife came to him at one point and said, I had a dream about this man, Jesus. Don't have anything to do with him. Can you imagine Pilate coming home for dinner that night? So did you follow my advice, honey? Well, not exactly, well, what happened to that man, Jesus, who I told you in my dream not to have it? Well, he ended up crucified. What? Did they kidnap him? And cru- well, not exactly. I don't think Mr. and Mrs. Pilate had much fun that night. I wouldn't have been in that household. I can't imagine Pilate would be happy to see a member of the council or hear any more talk about Jesus. So Pilate's hanging out, sulking in his little house there. And one of his soldiers or or, messengers comes and says, Hey, one of the Jewish council, Joseph of Arimathea, wants to talk to you about Jesus. (laughs) How much more trouble can I get into? I mean, but nevertheless, God 
opened his heart, you might say, and he entertained Joseph. Now, besides risking possible repercussions from Pilate, the Sanhedrin would be very unhappy to know that one of their members was showing compassion for Jesus in his death. I mean, he had been convicted, falsely of course, but of blasphemy. And then the Romans had treated him as if he was a traitor. And so here was Joseph wanting to prepare his body for burial as if he wasn't a blasphemous criminal. And so he was really out on a pretty deep, uh, you can't be out on a deep limb, right? Mixed metaphor, B plus, Pastor Gene. (laughs) I feel like such a failure. Anyway, we would attribute his boldness to the Holy Spirit coming upon him. Still, he had the choice to obey or disobey. If Joseph had balked, God would have raised up someone else. It's reminiscent of Elijah in the Old Testament. On the run, being hunted by the evil queen Jezebel, Elijah complained to God. He said, God, I'm the only one. I am alone in my devotion to you. In all of Israel, I'm the only one. God responded by telling Elijah, I actually have 7,000 people who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Now, they weren't hiding in a cave somewhere, but God knew who they were. Apparently, they were closet believers. But God knew that he could call upon them, and at least one of them could be tapped to step up. God is never without resources. He's made ample provision to see his plan for history to redeem the human race to its successful completion. It's our privilege to be part of God fulfilling his plan. He's chosen to use believers as his agents rather than, for example, angels. It seems inefficient, but in reality, it's brilliant. Because God's strength and glory are revealed in our weakness. We probably spend as much time saying, God, don't use me, as we ask God to use me. You know, church on Sunday morning, Bible says, oh, Lord, use me, make me a servant, humble and meek. Then we go to work and something comes up, oh, Lord, not, not now. I can't say the J word now or else I'll be laughed at or fired or something like that. And so we're very inefficient when it comes to being witnesses for Jesus Christ. And yet God says, no, this is, this is how I'm going to do this, because when you do obey me, the glory is mine. And it's so obvious that I'm filling you with my spirit that people can't deny it. Pilate, verse 44, marveled that Jesus was already dead. And summoning the centurion, he asked him if he had been dead for some time. Death by crucifixion could take days. The Romans liked to prolong death as long as possible as a deterrent to crime. Cruel and unusual punishment was their goal. It wasn't something to be avoided. It was like, hey, how can we make this as cruel and unusual as possible to deter criminals? And crucifixion fit the bill. Now, the centurion in charge of the crucifixion was kind of like our county sheriff. He doubled as the coroner, a seasoned soldier who had undoubtedly killed men face-to-face on the battlefield, and a skilled executioner who crucified men for a living. He knew when a person was really, really dead and not just mostly dead. You might say that the centurion issued a verbal death certificate. Pilate said, is he dead? He is dead. And dead meant dead when you were a Roman centurion. Mark goes to great lengths to establish Jesus' death on the cross. He does it because one of the false theories about Jesus is that he didn't die. 
that he revived after being taken off the cross. You know, those first century people were so stupid. They never knew when somebody was really dead. They couldn't tell. And so they wrapped him all up so he couldn't breathe, uh, and they put him in the tomb, and somehow, after having been scourged and crucified and wrapped up like a mummy, he revived because the tomb was so cool and refreshing. And then, of course, he unwrapped himself, and then he rolled the stone away, and he crawled away, and the rest is history, as they say. And so he was really, he was really dead. Verse 45, so when he found out from the centurion, he granted the body to Joseph. Now, I emphasize the word body because Mark uses a, almost a derogatory term. It's the word carcass or corpse. He gave the carcass to Joseph. It's a strong word, again, intended to communicate that no life was in Jesus' physical body. He was really dead. He was a carcass. There was no thought or hint or opportunity for there to be life remaining in him. Verse 46. Then he bought fine linen, took him down, and wrapped him in the linen. And he laid him in a tomb which had been hewn out of the rock and rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. I found this quote regarding Jewish burial customs in the first century. It goes like this. As soon as a person was dead, his body was to be washed. In this washing, the body was anointed with perfumes. Nard was the most usual of these, but myrrh and aloes were also used. By the time of Christ, the custom was that the body was elaborately wrapped in the shroud of Turin. No, excuse me, in a shroud. And the face was covered with a special cloth called a sudarium. The hands and feet were tied with strips of cloth. All of this happened in very short order. Burial usually followed within eight hours of death because in such a hot climate, burial could not be Delayed. You remember Jesus when he was going to rise, raise Lazarus from the dead, and he said, roll the stone away, and they said, Lord, by now he stinks. And so they'd get buried as quickly as possible. John's gospel tells us the tomb was near the place of crucifixion. It had been cut out horizontally into the side of a rock cliff. Such carefully hewn tombs were common around Jerusalem, and they generally belonged to well-to-do families. You really couldn't afford a tomb like that unless you were fairly wealthy. It was Joseph's own tomb, Matthew tells us. It had never been used, Luke tells us. Jesus' burial in a rich man's tomb is a fulfillment of prophecy, Isaiah 53, verse 9. They made his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. Imagine reading Isaiah 53 before uh, Jesus fulfills that, because what it's telling you is that he's going, it's, this person is going to die a poor man's criminal's death But nevertheless, he's going to be buried as if he was a rich, wealthy individual. Uh, And and so you think, wow, that's a a head scratcher uh, until you see that Jesus fulfills that in this episode. They rolled a stone against the door of the tomb. Stone was not a rough boulder. It would be a large, circular, flat stone. Think of a giant coin. It was fitted in a groove which could be rolled back to open the tomb when necessary. But it was heavy, and it would require a lot of men to roll it open. The stone was rolled over the entrance to keep out grave robbers and animals. And Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Joseph, observed where he was laid. If, in fact, Salome was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus, we may speculate that she went to comfort her, leaving uh, Mary Magdala and Salome. Mark includes their observation of the tomb to counteract another of the false theories about the resurrection of Jesus. They say that the disciples, lacking GPS technology, 
went to the wrong tomb on the first Easter morning, and they found an empty tomb, and they assumed that Jesus had risen from the dead. People will believe almost any lie about Jesus rather than admit that they are sinners who need to be saved. Because essentially, if you say, it looks like Jesus rose from the dead, then that validates everything he said and everything he did. And that leaves you in the position of a hell-doomed sinner that needs to cry out to the Lord. And so these are some of the lame excuses that people come up with to try and avoid uh, that analysis of their life. Like Amos, Joseph of Arimathea burst onto the scene at the behest of God's providence, and he performed a remarkable service. I said earlier that there was an Amos in all of us. Let me clarify that. Some of you probably are thinking uh, that's not really accurate. And here's why. I think we'd agree that it's the Holy Spirit who came upon Amos and Joseph, giving them the boldness to serve the Lord in these remarkable ways. For their part, they chose to not quench the Holy Spirit, but rather to yield to him. So the only reason there's an Amos within us would be that the Holy Spirit is within us, coming upon us. So when I say that, I'm really talking about God, the Holy Spirit, and his effect upon our lives. If Amos and Joseph could be given boldness, how much more can we have boldness since, first of all, we already have the Holy Spirit permanently residing within us? If you're a Christian, you've been born again, and that means that God, the Holy Spirit, resides in you, and that's where you find the power to say yes to God and no to sin. But you've been further promised that he will come upon you to empower you as a gift to be received by faith. And so if you're saved and you have the Holy Spirit living within you, that doesn't preclude the possibility that he will constantly come upon you in a greater sense to empower you. You see this in the book of Acts several times where the disciples who clearly were born again, filled with the Spirit, nevertheless prayed that he would uh, embolden them and he would come upon them. And then Jesus tells us that this is a gift to be received by faith. So really... You have the Holy Spirit in you, and any time you need boldness, you can walk by faith that you've received it. I made a comparison between us and the women and Joseph. Like the women who followed Jesus, most of our serving is going to be routine, but it is never to be considered insignificant since it can be done unto the Lord. Like Joseph, we should not think it's inconceivable that we be empowered to do something or some things that are remarkable. I think sometimes we think that we're just average Christians going about our average Christian life and that we shouldn't ever expect to do something remarkable. But uh, Joseph is especially encouraging in that because he does do something remarkable. And more than that, we're told he was afraid in John's gospel and we see him hiding his faith in Jesus Christ. Now, how is that encouraging? Well, because the Lord nevertheless chose him to serve him. We would not choose Joseph for this important mission. If there was some kind of a committee that day and said, hey, we need to step forward and claim the body of Jesus and give him a proper burial, who are we going to get to do that? If somebody suggested Joseph, I think there'd be a chuckle in the room. Joseph's a closet Christian. He said nothing during Jesus' trial. Him and Nicodemus are wannabes. We're not going to give something so important to such a loser. But God said, Joseph, this is the time. I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, 
you want to step forward and serve me, now is the time. And you know what? He did. And that was remarkable. Uh, I mean, he wasn't just showing compassion. I mean, he was in danger. He was endangering his life, certainly his reputation. I'll tell you, that wasn't a day to identify with Jesus Christ. Not from Pilate's point of view, not from the Sanhedrin's point of view. And yet he is the least likely person probably that you would pick out of a crowd to do this. Jesus looks for the unlikely. If you're here today cowering in fear of men, hiding your Christian faith, barricaded in the closet, know this, you are not disqualified from being called upon to step forward and to be used by the Lord. In fact, I know that he's doing that right now. Because the truth is he doesn't want you in the closet and you don't want to be there. I've never met a Christian who says, hey, leave me in some closet somewhere. I don't want to do anything for God. We all want to serve the Lord. We're just hesitant and fearful. Well, we're just like Joseph and just like him, we can know the power of the Holy Spirit. You might be the perfect candidate. It goes against all of our thinking, but God delights in using frail, broken vessels in order that the glory might be his and not ours. When we look back on Joseph, no one can say, well, he was a rich guy on the Sanhedrin. I mean, of course he's going to do that. No, you're going to look at Joseph and say, this, is, this guy, I don't understand. Joseph did that? Nobody would believe it. Not any of the Christians, not any of the Sanhedrin. I don't want to give the impression, however, that we can only perform one remarkable deed in our lifetime as we walk with Jesus. Joseph stepped forward. He hit this home run as a pinch hitter. And then as far as the Bible's concerned, we never hear anything more about him. I think we can assume that he walked with the Lord after this, but we just don't know from the biblical record. Why do we think there's only one remarkable service that we can perform? The way to think about it is this. We should do everything as unto the Lord, expecting any minute to do something remarkable as unto the Lord. And so this is the picture we're getting that Mark is giving us. I do everything as unto the Lord. All that I would consider insignificant, no matter what it is, it's unto the Lord. And I can do something remarkable for him maybe once in my lifetime, maybe once a day, maybe once an hour. Why limit it? Just serve the Lord and let him empower you. Receive the gift of the Holy Spirit and then step out in faith.